Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Today is going to be a little bit of an interesting message. Um, today's title is Surprise! That's not in the Bible. Um, I have actually 40 different things that came up. Some of them are fun, some of them are anecdotal, some of them have, a, have almost no effect on your life. Some of them affect our lives very profoundly. Some of them you may say, well, I never thought that. Some of you may say, wow, I always thought that. Um, and so I'm looking forward to seeing how far we get um, today because uh, I don't want to, to go over time, but I'm, we're just going to see what happens. So, Number one, Noah only had two of every kind of animal. How many of you guys remember the story? And the Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. You remember that one? And the animals came by twosies, twosies. How many of you know what's wrong with the statement that there was only two of each animal? Let me remember that. The Bible says that he brought seven pairs. This is what it says in Genesis 7-2. It says, take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate. So the Bible says, actually, it wasn't just two. There were 14 of each of the clean animals, just an interesting trivia. That's one of those things doesn't affect your life a whole lot. Um, another thing that we do not find in the Bible that many people believe was there is infant baptism. Luke Chapter 2, verse 22 verse 20 through 23, gives us the story of Jesus when he was an infant. And it says, when the time for purification rites required by the law of Moses came, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written by the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. So he was brought, he was dedicated, but he was not baptized. And Dedicating your children to the Lord is very much a biblical process. When we look in Scripture and we look at every single example of baptism, there isn't a single one where they were an infant. In fact, Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized. So from a biblical perspective, one repents and then is baptized. In Acts 8.35, we have the, the story Philip was just translated and, and, and he is, is ministering to the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And as it says in verse 36, it says, As they were traveling down the road, the man said, Look, here is a pool of water. Why don't I get baptized right now? Philip replied, If you believe with all your heart, I'll baptize you. Biblically, baptism is something we do that follows a declaration of belief. It is something we do that follows an act of repentance. The man answered, I believe that Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God. The Ethiopian stopped the chariot and they went down to the water and Philip baptized him. So, is there, now someone may say, well, what if I was baptized as a kid? That didn't hurt you any. There's no damage, no harm. The issue is, were we following a biblical example when we did that? What I would do is I would look at Scripture and I would say, the Bible says that it is important to dedicate and consecrate children to the Lord. 
Really? That's what an infant baptism is. It's it's parents coming and saying, we desire to raise this child up in in, in the ways of the Lord. That's a biblical thing to do. But it does not take the place of what a biblical baptism would be, which means at an age when you're capable of believing and repenting, then choosing to be baptized. Number three, cleanliness is next to godliness. Anyone ever heard that? Verse, chapter and verse, it's not there. That's actually Francis Bacon. Um, Not in the Bible. Uh, Someone someone said, try telling John the Baptist that cleanliness was next to, to godliness. The Bible describes him as being dressed in just camel hair and eating wild bugs and wild honey. Now, the Bible is not against hygiene. I actually find it very fascinating that when you look at the Hebrew rules, the law in the Old Testament, and the different instructions that God gave the Israelites, he was very specific about things regarding hygiene. One of the things that stands out to me is Numbers 31, 19. It says, anyone who has killed someone or touched someone who was killed must stay outside the camp seven days. On the third day and the seventh days, you must purify yourself, which was a washing with water, and your captives. Purify every garment as well as, as everything made of leather, goat hair, or wood. What does that sound like? Those are instructions to sterilize before anyone even knew that germs existed. So, God, and it's fascinating, when we look back some of the the Old Testament rules, when the Bible told the the Hebrews not to eat pork, for example. Well, today, we recognize that pork is one of the, um, if not prepared properly, one of the number one carriers of parasites. Well, if in today's society, we can cook things, we 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 can eat it in a safer way, back then when you were just cooking over a fire, when you look at some of the, the fish that they were told to eat, the Bible says, told the Hebrews, avoid the fish that don't have scales, eat the fish that do have scales. Someone told me that um, when you're like out in the wilderness, if you catch a catfish and you eat it, the parasites that live in that fish can live in your body. But the same parasites that live in, um, for example, I think it was like a bass or walleye that, that, have ship, that, that would be considered clean, there's a different pH in those bodies. Your body and their body aren't compatible, and those same parasites don't live in you the same way that they can. We look at those types of things. I think God is pro-hygiene. However, I mean, no, I'm not kidding. I have it down here. I don't want to waste too much time on this. But he told the Israelites to go and bury their excrement. Like, he gave them very detailed things. So God is pro-hygiene. However, godliness is next to, or cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the Bible. Um, here's a fun one. David fought a giant from the Philippines. Of course, he fought, fought a giant who was a Philistine, not from the Philippines. Um, I saw that when I thought that was funny. Now, another. The devil has horns and a pitchfork. 
I mean, think about it. We've been, when, when we look and see, you know, when you picture the devil, that the devil has horns, this is what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. That does not surprise us, for even Satan transforms himself to appear as an angel of light. Where did, where did the picture of, of Satan with horns and, an, and a pointy tail and a red, where did that come from? Most likely that came from a work of fiction uh, in about 1,314 Dante's Inferno. He wrote a story that was very popular, and in that he described in Satan in a similar way, not exactly all the way to the, the triton and the pointy tail, but similarly with the horns and, and all of that, and that is probably where that comes from. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, too, that many of us have entertained angels unaware. So what does Satan look like? Satan, we know, was created as Lucifer, an angel of light. He was beautiful. There were instruments built into his body. That's what the Bible tells us about what he looks like. So, not pitchfork and horns. Adam and Eve ate an apple. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the women saw that the fruit, could have been a mango, I hope not, that's my favorite fruit, of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. She also gave, gave some to her husband. Here's another misconception. Who was with her? Anybody ever picture that like Eve was off by herself and she got, you know, she ate that and then like she brought it to Adam and like tricked him with it or something afterwards? That's not, that's not in the Bible. She wasn't off by herself. They were together when this happened. She was the first to eat it, but the Bible says she handed it to Adam, who was with her. Here's another one. How many of you guys have ever set up a uh, nativity scene? All right, what goes in the nativity scene? We've got Joseph, Mary, Jesus, usually a sheep, cow, and how many wise men? Three wise men. Here's the thing. The wise men were not there. Right? They weren't there the same night. The Bible talks about that night. The Bible says that, that, that angels appeared to the shepherds, that they came and they were there. But what does it say about the wise men? The wise men actually went to Herod. They thought, well, if something this important is happening in your kingdom, you're going to know about it. And they asked him, and he didn't have a clue. And he said, you know, deceitfully, well, when you find him, come back and tell me. And then the Bible says in Matthew 2.16, it says, when Herod saw that they did not return to him as he had asked them to, he was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. He asked the wise men, hey, when did the star appear? When is it likely that the baby was born? And they said, well, it was almost two years ago. And so he said, okay, this child must be within that age. It also, the Bible says that in uh, Matthew 2, 1, that the wise men on coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. They didn't show up at the stable like 
the others did. They showed up at the house. Um, here's another uh, thing that many people may have grown up believing was a scriptural practice, and that is to pray to saints as intermediaries between us and God. That Christians, specifically special Christians, who passed away before us, that we should be praying to them so that they would then speak to God on our behalf. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Period. So, what about our family who have passed away? Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. From a scriptural perspective, that witnesses can also be translated martyrs as in Christians who had previously passed. There is scriptural context that, that those who have passed are aware to a degree of what is happening here on earth. The Bible says that we're surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses. When Jesus told the story about the um, rich man and Lazarus, remember the rich man brought up his family that were back on earth and he was concerned with their well-being and he asked, hey, would you send Lazarus back from the dead to speak to my family because I don't want them to come to this place? There is scriptural understanding that those who have passed are concerned with us. They are aware. But the Bible does not say to speak to them. In fact, and I didn't, I didn't pull up the scriptures for this, but... King Saul lost the kingdom because he tried to contact the dead. The Bible says, do not do that. In one place, it says that Saul, now the Bible, Saul was trying to contact the prophet of God, Elijah. But it says, in, in another scripture referring to that, it says that he inquired of a familiar spirit, and it said, what is a familiar spirit? A familiar spirit is an evil spirit that is familiar with the going-ons and comings of your life. I believe that the reason, one big reason that God says, do not speak to the dead, is because he knows that Satan has a habit of trying to use that to lead people astray that he will put a familiar spirit that is a, a demonic entity who is familiar with details, who knows that question you were going to ask grandma, you know, hey, what was our address back when? Oh, my goodness. It must be grandma. The Bible describes it as a familiar spirit. Imagine how many people have been led astray because a familiar spirit gave them some random answer they thought, you know, nobody else knows. The Bible is clear. We are not to, to attempt to contact the dead. Um, and praying to saints as intermediaries 
isn't simply not in the Bible. It's literally, we're told, there is one intermediary. Who is our intermediary? Jesus Christ. That is why when we pray, we say, in Jesus' name, amen. What does amen stand for? We just think of it, amen means end of prayer. No, amen means so be it. In Jesus' name, let it be so. That's what we, when we speak and we pray in his name. All right, here's one. I might step on some toes. All right, now here's the thing. <sighs> Drinking any quantity of alcohol is a sin. Does the Bible say that? No, it doesn't. Galatians chapter 5, 21 does say, and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is clear that drunkenness is sin. But is a drink of wine drunkenness? NyQuil has alcohol. If, if I take NyQuil, have, have I sinned? Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.23, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Paul actually said, hey, use this wine as a medicine. Now, he didn't tell him to get drunk. Now, somebody might be in here, oh, yes, I am so getting a case on my way home tonight. <laughs> this is what the Bible does say. It doesn't say that drinking a swallow of alcohol is sin. It does not. But here is what Proverbs 29, 29 through 35 does say. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will imagine confusing things, and you will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When I wake up, so I can find another drink. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? This is what the Bible says. The Bible equates alcohol with a lot of very undesirable things. The Bible points out that lewd behavior and self-harm and confusion and all kinds of things accompany alcohol. Romans chapter 14, 21 says this, and I'm reading from the, the Passion Translation. It says, Consider it an act of love to refrain from eating meat or drinking wine or doing anything else that would cause a fellow believer to be offended or tempted to be weakened in his faith. Here's the thing. Does drinking alcohol, just a little, in moderation, under control, is that sin? The answer, no. Does drinking alcohol mess some people up pretty badly? Yes, it does. The Bible describes it as a snake that bites. Now, this is my, this is, this is my own personal illustration. We have dogs. We have two very friendly, usually fluffy, they just got a haircut, dogs. Now, when you come to our house, those dogs want to meet you immediately. Now, what if I had a dog that didn't bite most people, but about one in ten? 
just one in 10, that dog would bite it. And I was like, but you know what? Nine people don't get bitten by that dog, so I'm just going to keep letting it greet everyone who comes to my door. What would you say about me when you came to visit and you discovered that I released my dogs that had a 10% chance of chomping onto your arm? You would say, wait a minute. That wasn't very respectful of you to put me in that harm's way. This is what Romans 21 says, I believe, about our, our testimony. Okay? I believe, especially as a leader in church, but all of us are called to be examples. I believe that I, I, I am very likely that if I encourage someone, if I'm, if I'm drinking openly and if I'm doing all of this, that I may encourage someone to say, well, if he does it, so can I. And then they're in trouble. Now, am I responsible for every choice that they ever make? No, I'm not. And there's a balance there. But you want to know how I think about that? 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, You say under grace there are no rules and we're free to do anything we please. Not exactly. Because not everything promotes growth in others. Your slogan, we're allowed to do anything we choose, may be true, but not everything causes the spiritual advancement of others. And NIV said it this way, I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. So, what does the Bible say about alcohol? Drunkenness is sin. A swallow of alcohol isn't sin. But we all have a responsibility to not cause others to stumble, to avoid things that may cause ourselves to stumble. So do you have freedom in that area? Yes, you do. But be wise with that freedom. All right, 11. Now, hopefully most of you didn't grow up hearing this, but some people have, and so I'm going to put it in here. Interracial relationships are sin or otherwise ungodly. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? And you're about to see something that you'll understand how people twisted it. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Were they talking about skin tone? No. It clarified. It said, What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? It is a literary tool to repeat something in, in different wording over and over. When it says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? It's not talking about skin tone. Actually, we have an interesting story in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Marin, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, Egyptian wife, African wife that he had married. Now, Verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them, that is, Miriam and Aaron, for their anger at Moses, seemingly because of his interracial marriage. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask that you not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Now, I don't know this, but some people have, have proposed 
that God said, you don't like that she's dark, darker than you, I'll make you really white. Leprosy, it says she turned to white. I don't know that that was God's motive, but some people have proposed that that was, that was a secondary point in what he was saying. There is, there is no, no scripture that says you have to marry someone who is of similar race to you. The Bible does say, listen, the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. That's it. Actually, again, the Bible gives you way more freedom than you need. It does not say look for someone with a job. It does not say, you know, it doesn't even specify that they should be patient and kind. How many of you realize patient, kind, those are good things? Employed, excellent criteria. Not a biblical requirement. There is one absolute biblical requirement as a Christian that says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now, you've got all kinds of things to figure out. Hey, do we, do we get along? Are, are our, our personalities, are our, our family culture, are we, are, are, how do we get along? Yeah, but nothing about skin tone. All right. Continuing. On 12 of 40. Speaking in tongues. How many of you guys are okay? This is so different than the way we usually do match. How many like this? Are we good? About half of you? All right, I'll pretend more of you raised your hand. I'm just teasing. All right, speaking in tongues is required for salvation. Acts chapter 19. Reading from the Passion Translation, it says, The first thing he asked them was, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? No, they replied. We have not even heard of the Holy Spirit. We have talked in depth. We've done entire messages on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and those things. But this verse makes it clear. They were believers. They experienced salvation, but had not yet heard about the Holy Spirit. Secondarily, so another very similar point is baptism. Water baptism is required for salvation. However, Luke chapter 23, verse 43, Jesus is speaking to the thief who is on the cross next to him, who literally just acknowledged Jesus as Savior, as Messiah moments ago. And Jesus replied to him and said, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Did he get water baptized? Obviously not. Obviously not. Now, a totally different topic. Is water baptism a biblical thing? Absolutely. Does God recommend it? Absolutely. Does it have benefits? Absolutely. Is one of those benefits sealing salvation? No. That is not what the Bible says. Next. God helps those who help themselves. Chapter and verse, Hezekiah, chapter 1, verse... No, there is no book of the Bible, Hezekiah, by the way. Um, ben Franklin was actually quoting an 18th century poet in the Poor Richard Almanac when he popularized that statement. God helps those that helps himself. Now, there is a truth here. Faith and action don't exist in a vacuum apart from each other. 
I remember hearing a story in my, my grandmother's hometown about a man who decided that he was going to live by faith. He quit his job and he went home to just wait for God to pay all his bills. He was just going to stay home, watch TV, and live by faith. Acts, uh, let me see, where am I at? James, James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone might object and say, one person has faith and another person has works. As in, like, some people just have faith, like that guy. Doesn't matter what he does, he's just got faith. And then this other person, well, they just have works, but they have no faith. Go ahead then and prove to me that you have faith without works. But I will show you faith by my works as proof that I believe. Here's the point. They don't exist in a vacuum apart from each other. There is no verse that says God helps those who help themselves. But we are also not called to just say, hey, I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to stay home and, and God's just going to pay all my bills and make everything happen. God calls us to step out and take action on the beliefs that we have. So they are uh, dependent on each other in many ways. They don't exist completely separate from each other. Number 15, that certain, and, and insert here, I didn't want to make a list of all of them and, and then and lengthen my list, but that certain spiritual gifts have passed away. Many people say, oh, well, that's, that's prophecy. That's passed away. Oh, healing, that passed away. That comes from this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8 through 12. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the completeness comes, or some translations say, when that which is perfect comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. So there is a, there is a time and a place when there will be no more tongues. That place, this verse describes. People said, that's now. That's now. They say, when the completeness come, when the perfect come, those who... who, who I believe falsely interpret this, this verse, say, well, that completeness must be God's word. God's word is without error. That is the perfect. It has come. Well, if it came, then the rest of these conditions would be fulfilled. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, this is Paul writing. He says, I know in part. Then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. So Paul describes two things. He says, compared to him at the time of writing the Bible, by the way, his knowledge was partial, but he, there's going to be a time when his knowledge will be complete. In fact, it'll be so complete, it will be as complete as, as God's knowledge of him. Are we at that point? He says, we will be face to face. Are we at that point? What 
would describe? What would fit that? When will we be face-to-face with God, and when will we know as well as we're known? When we're in heaven. That is when there will be no more need for tongues and prophecy because we are all in God's presence in heaven. That is when those things will take place, not before. 16. God only gives his biggest battles to those he loves most. Meaning, if life is good, God loves you less. John 16.33 says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So, how many of you have that on a magnet on your fridge? In this world you will have trouble. John 16.33, I've never seen that one tattooed on someone's arm. The, the truth is that, that there is a like We cannot look at someone's life and say, well, because they have hardship, God loves them more. Or because they're blessed, God loves them more. We can't look at it that way. Ephesians 4, 11 through uh, 13 says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in and every situation, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says that he has been in all of those situations. If, if, If trials mean God loves you more, well, then he would have only been in trials. If blessing means God loves you more, then the author of the New Testament would have always been blessed at every moment in his life. But the Bible doesn't describe life as being always one or the other. In fact, Jesus says, be prepared for seasons, for challenges, for things that will come. For in this life, there will be trouble. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. What does that mean? That means that when we diligently do right, when we diligently obey God, that there is a time, not every time, not all the time, not the whole time, but there is a time when that harvest comes and the Bible says we will reap that harvest. We think in such short terms. You know what, God? I gave, an, I gave in the offering last week. Do I win the lotto today? And if, and if I don't win the lotto this week, well then, huh. No. The Bible says in due time. So, I've got so many more. I've got a bunch about what the Bible says about women, gender roles. Go read Proverbs 31. Did she stay home all the time? Did she not work outside of the home? Um, But I don't have time to to open that, but we're just going to throw out. There are so much more. We'll probably address some of those things in in a separate message. 
But let me just throw out some, some, some ones I can hit a little bit faster. I have to dress up at church. I literally, I literally heard someone once say that you are more, anoint, more anointed if you preach while wearing a tie. I, I'm not kidding. And I heard them say other things that, that had value, but that one I was just like, what? Here's, here, here's something we need to understand. Dressing up for church is a cultural thing. And it is a meaningful thing to those who do it. The, they were taught that I bring my best to the Lord. And so when, when, when someone comes dressed up, they are doing that as an act of honor and respect to the Lord. Now, what happened in our culture? Because if we back up 25 years, 30 years, most of the churches, everybody was dressed up. Do you remember? How many of you remember that? When, when most churches, everyone was dressed up. Why? Because at that time, that was a, a, an expression of honor to the Lord. Here's what happened. So many people stepped in the back of a church, looked at all of these picture-perfect, fancy-dressed folks on Sunday morning, and then ran into them on Monday, and they were so nasty, dirty, and disgusting in the way they treated them that they began to equate their dress-up with hypocrisy. Culturally today, there has been a swing where people have said, I don't want to participate in something that feels hypocritical. So if I'm going to go to church, I'm going to go as me. How do I usually dress? That's how I'll be. And it's an act of authenticity and sincerity. Who's right and who's wrong? Is it better to dress up and present your best to the Lord? Or is it better to do... Here's the answer. Neither one of them is wrong. Neither one. Both of them have a reason for doing what they're doing. There is a cultural shift going on. I, it blew my mind. I, was, I, I worked with someone who I saw on a regular basis. And then I bumped into her outside of work. And she had done her hair and done her makeup and gotten all gussied up, as the saying goes. And what I found was there was a time culturally when people dressed up to go to work. That isn't even the case anymore. A lot of people don't dress up for work. They dress up for social outings. And work isn't a place where they get dressed up anymore. It used to be if you went to work, everybody was dressing to impress each other at work. Not the case anymore. See, we're just in a cultural shift. When and where people dress up is changing, and it has reasons. There are people doing that for reasons. My point is this. I love it when someone comes dressed sharp to church every Sunday because I understand what they're doing it for, and I believe that God sees and honors their choice. But when someone comes who isn't dressed up, I don't see it any differently. 
I look at them and say, I am so glad that you, are, you feel at home here. This is your home. We're welcome. And I try to be somewhere in the middle. Um, I think I'm just, I got so many more fun ones to hit, but I think we're just out of time for today. Um, one of our points today is this. The Bible says of one of the churches that they would go home and search the scriptures daily to see if what they were taught was true. That's what we're called to do. Sometimes there are things we have heard over and over and over again. They might be right. They might not. But we are called to search the scripture and compare and see if that is right, if it coincides, if it lines up with Scripture. Sometimes what we heard, as though it was in Scripture, isn't in Scripture, but perhaps the, same, the concept is still there. Other times, neither the concept nor the statement are there. I want to close with this. The Bible does say that, that God desires no one would perish. That's what Jesus desires. We recognize from many different scriptures and from that there will be people who perish. That's one of the other misconceptions. Every single thing that God wants to happen happens. Not true. The Bible says that he wills that no one would perish, but it's clear that some people will. What's the difference? The Bible says that we are to accept that we repent confess, and that we're forgiven. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead, you will be saved. Does, does saying a prayer magically put you in heaven? The answer is no. No. However, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth, that does. It's not the magical words. You may have noticed when we pray at the end of a service that it's not verbatim the exact same thing every time. Why? Because it isn't the magic abracadabra phrase that saves us. It is the acceptance of his forgiveness. It is the declaration of our belief. And it is the, ex the, the internalization of that belief that puts us in right standing with God. Not because it does. He puts us in that. Right? So if you're here today and you know that your sins are forgiven, that you're right with God, I want to ask you to just raise your hand. So awesome. If you're looking around and say, man, I always hoped that I was right with God, but I don't know it. The Bible says you can know. You can know that you're saved, just like that verse says. If you're here today, with every eye closed, just for a moment, only because I don't want anyone to be embarrassed, if you're here and you want to make that declaration, if you're ready to confess that belief, I want to invite you to raise your hand, and we'll do it together today. If you're watching online and that's you, I invite you to join us together. We're going we're gonna to say this prayer together right now. Say, Dear God, I believe... You died on the cross for my sin and rose again. 
I choose to make you the Lord of my life. I will live for you. Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if that's you, I want to invite you, come on down front. I have a gift for you. If you're watching online and that was you, please reach out to us. Send us a private message or just put a comment under the video there. We will uh, send you a digital link and you can download a little booklet that gives you lots of uh, helpful instructions on where to go next. All right.